0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5. We will continue with this theme of Jesus as the high priest, which is woven throughout this sermon called Hebrews. In fact, in chapter 2, Jesus is called the merciful and faithful high priest. In chapter 3, he's referred to as the high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, as we studied last week, he is called our great high priest, And this week, these ten verses display him as the perfect high priest. So hear God's word as I read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, our Lord reminded us the sufficiency of your holy word when he said, Man shall live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us live by your word, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you have heard the concept or phrase planned obsolescence or built-in obsolescence. This is the conscious decision on the part of a given agency or manufacturer to produce a consumer product that will become obsolete in a defined period of time. It exists in many products, from vehicles to light bulbs from buildings to computer software. There are really two different kinds of planned obsolescence that we can speak of. One is technical obsolescence. That's where a product is made with inferior products on, or parts on purpose so that it breaks down after a certain amount of time and you have to replace it. There's different reasons for why this is done but it's a fact of production. Uh, they can make a VCR that'll last 20 or 30 years but instead the one you have as soon as it breaks you're better off buying a new one. Why? because the labor involved in replacing the plastic part will cost more than the VCR itself, and that's just planned obsolescence. Now, it's not all ill will or just to gain money. It's also with technology in mind. Uh, So what if your VCR lasted 20 or 30 years? Who's going to be watching videotapes in 20 or 30 years? Who's going to be watching DVDs in 20 or 30 years? So there's a sense in which that's friendly towards us, but there's a planned obsolescence in that. In fact... There's another kind of obsolescence, which I notice more, maybe not as much as I ought to being a man and all, style obsolescence. That's where a product will not be stylish in the span of a calculated period of time. And frankly, that's true across the board. Other than the 1968 Camaro, there's no timeless body on any vehicle that there is. Think about it. Americans only keep cars less than five years, the expert tell us, so they never plan for any further than that because... The style dates it we know what it looks like and it's funny how they come back but you could tell still a new car as opposed to what it looked like way back when it originally came out in fact along those lines my dad has a pinstripe suit from the 50s it's come in and gone out about five times now it'll probably come in again soon enough in fact one one of these style points that make my wife and i laugh as we look at our wedding album my wife is very style conscious in that she's aware and understands uh, what good styles are. And at the time, shiny teal wedding bridesmaid dresses were in style. And we laugh when we look at that now. Now, I hear you laughing, but I've been to some of your houses, and I've seen, I've seen your wedding pictures from the 70s, especially from the 80s. Those are the best ones. Style obsolescence. For a time, they have their place, and they're good for that time. There's a purpose for it they wear out their usefulness. If it's a planned obsolescence, it's planned. For a certain period of time, this is going to have great good. It's going to be important. In the redemptive plan of the Trinity, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is an example of planned obsolescence. It was there for a great purpose. It ministered to people so that they might know who the Redeemer is in their time frame, before Messiah actually came. But with his coming... The old order priesthood became obsolete. And the writer of the Hebrews here is not trying to say, Old priesthood bad, good priesthood good. Just rather, old priesthood had its purpose. New priesthood cannot be topped in Christ. Don't even try. As glorious as the old priesthood it was. And he, and he says nice things about it. Like Moses. In comparison to Christ. In comparison to Christ, there is no way to say that there's still a need for that old priesthood when we have the great, merciful, faithful high priest of our confession, the perfect priest. That's what this passage essentially illustrates for us, declares to us that Christ perfectly fulfills the office of high priest, manifesting himself as our sole mediator with God the Father. And I stress, he's manifesting himself, Jesus Christ, and hear me closely on this, has always been the only mediator, the only way to God. Always. It's not new when he comes and does his work on the cross. But he manifests himself in an unquestionable way as the sole mediator when he comes. And he proves himself with his sinless life, his death, and his ascension. What we have before us in this text... Linguists like to refer to as concentric symmetry. If you look at it on your outline, you will see it begins by describing on the top part of it, think of it as an hourglass, the outline, and the top part of the hourglass is describing the old office of the priesthood, and then on the bottom half of the hourglass is the new priesthood in Christ. So you have this concentric symmetry. If you folded that then together, you would see that it says the same, it says one thing about the the old priesthood, and then it says how Christ fulfills it, and yet takes it to a new level. So we have before us a beautiful picture of what our perfect high priest has done for us and what it means in very practical terms as we proceed. Look at verse 1, where we see the old office of the high priest in its very basic terms. Verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men. So they are taken from among the people, and they're given a special place as go-betweens, if you will, as mediators as such between God and man, in that order. God was not as approachable then as he is now. It's not that he wasn't near to his people, it's just that he wanted to maintain a clear picture of their distance between him, him and their sin separating. And so he wanted to maintain that and showed it and illustrated it in this Old Testament economy. The people were still very personally involved with their Lord, however they had this constant picture of how they needed redemption. And so the old office of the high priest, people come, a man comes from the people and represents the people. And remember what the two main roles of the high priest were. To represent and to intercede. To represent and to intercede. Represent how? They bring the sacrifice on behalf of the people, as one of the people. That's how they represent the people. They intercede by praying, by constantly lifting up the people before the throne of grace. So representation and intercession is true of the old office of the high priest. In particular, look at the second portion of verse 1. To act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This refers to the perpetual office of the priesthood and the high priesthood. They would offer daily gifts. But ultimately, you remember that the ultimate gift and the ultimate purpose, the chief purpose for the high priest was once a year to offer on the Day of Atonement that sacrifice for himself before he entered the Holy of Holies and then sprinkling the blood that represented the covering of our sins on the mercy seat. That was his most important purpose. For all the things the priest did, for the high priest, that was the chief thing that he did on behalf of the people of God. So that is the old office of the high priest. Important for sure. And what goes hand-in-hand with this office is the solidarity that that high priest had with the people. Look at verses 2 and 3. Speaking of the old office, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, he related completely with those who were ignorant and wayward. And notice the difference between ignorant, ignorant and wayward. Ignorant means you do something wrong, but you don't really know what you've done. It's still sin, but there's a difference in how one is approached when they're ignorant as opposed to wayward wayward you know and you still do the wrong thing the high priest because he's one of us so to speak he can relate with both those who are ignorant and wayward he could be gentle with them because he himself is beset with weakness he may have fallen in the same way or can completely understand how he could That gives a solidarity between the high priest and the people. Don't let your picture of the high priesthood be solely Caiaphas in the New Testament. He was a bad guy. He was corrupt. The priesthood had gotten very corrupt by the time of Caiaphas for about a 500-year period, as a matter of fact. But during the time that is being written of here, there was a certain... uniformity to the priesthood and there was an understanding that they were in solidarity with the people there was a connectedness they had families like the people did their children played with the children of the people there wasn't this off and other kind of idea other than their temple duties they weren't given land either others had land of their own whereas the priesthood had to live off the offerings of the people so there's definitely that component but there's a solidarity with the people that they shared as high priest even and he could deal gently with them because he's one of them in fact, this harkens ahead to the leaders of the church in our day, where we're told in Galatians 6 to restore the one who has fallen gently, lest you also might be caught up in a similar sin. The same concept pervades human leadership, even when it's divinely appointed. Solidarity of the high priest with the people is key in understanding this old office. In fact, it's been said that this helps us to really relate with our leaders. It also helps you to know where you get your advice, so to speak. It's also been said, never let your hair be cut by a bald barber. He can't identify with your needs, is what has been said. The high priest is an important figure as he was, basically a celebrity, still put his sandals on the same way every other Israelite did. Verse 3 says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Do you catch what is required of him in solidarity with the people. Just because he's given a robe to wear and a special status, he still is constantly reminded of his frailty as he has to make a sacrifice before he can even represent the people. His sin is such that it needs covering before he can go represent you. He doesn't have an opportunity, if he has studied well, to think highly of himself. Because God says, you can't even come here, lest you first Give me a sacrifice for your own sins. I often think of this if I had been born in that era as a Levite and maybe uh, just a rank-and-file priest and just thinking of the fact of having to offer these sacrifices, but then to be a high priest and on the Day of Atonement to have to make the sacrifice, I'd be so scared that it didn't cover it all because I know my heart. You know your heart. Could you imagine having all the weight of all the people of God on your back and you come to the Lord with the sacrifice to be made? hoping he'll accept it because you know the wickedness of your own heart, and here you are supposed to be the representative of the people. What a terrifying thing that had to be for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. In fact, when you read Jewish commentaries about how this was done, how the sacrifice was given, you will find a constant thread of this idea where they would tie a rope around the leg of the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies where if he did not make proper sacrifice or hid something from God in that way, he he could be struck dead on the spot. And no one would enter to get his body out, so they would have to pull him out with the rope. This is the seriousness of going before the presence of God as a representative of the people. The solidarity of the high priest with the people is true of the old order for sure. This also breeds a humility within the high priest that is part of being a high priest. In the old order verse 4 and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was and for the the priest in the old order it wasn't like you thought hey I grew up in the tribe of Benjamin I feel like God's calling me to ministry I'm gonna go to seminary find a wife who plays piano and then I'm gonna go off and be a preacher a minister a pastor it's not how it happens the tribe of Levi is the only tribe designated for this purpose called by God it was an appointment by God in fact Aaron is one of my favorite characters in Scripture and I don't know how I don't like to say too much of my own thought on Aaron because there's not that much said about his personality but you get the impression that he kinda was in the background there and God is a way of humbling Moses had him as his mouthpiece Moses struggled with speaking and so there's Aaron but you gotta think Aaron's thinking himself the whole time as second in charge so to speak Boy, am I glad Moses is the one that has to deal directly with God. You just get this impression about Aaron. And so here's Moses meeting God, being told all these things, standing off to the side. And then in Exodus 28, we have Aaron called as a high priest. He turns from Moses and says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. Aaron has got to be terrified. What does he want? Moses is good. He'll work. And his son's with him. So bring your sons. And among the people of Israel... Bring them out of the Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron's and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And all of chapter 28 is a vivid description of the making of the priestly garments to display the holiness of God, uh, the unapproachability of God, lest you be prepared, and all that goes into this beautiful imagery and the old priesthood. And here's Aaron, called. He didn't ask to be called. He wasn't particularly qualified to be called, but he was called. Remember, Joshua was hanging around then. He would have made a good representative, but Aaron was picked because it was God's choice to pick him. And later in Exodus 29... The text says, further, it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. So the sons of Aaron were designated to be the priesthood. They're chosen by God. It was not man's prerogative, but God's prerogative as to who would serve as a priest. Not for anyone to decide, but God. So if you wrap up all that there is said about the old office of priest, the solidarity he had with the people, his humility before the people, we see a man who came from them, represented them, able to sympathize with them, constantly reminded of his own sin by the sacrifices he had to bring for himself before he could bring any for others, chosen by God to be a mediator. Then verse 5, the second half of our hourglass, so to speak, starts with a comparison to Christ, so also Christ, in, chapter f- in verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. So now we see the humility of Jesus. But was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And quoting the second psalm here, the writer brings the office of the priest together with the office of Messiah, distinguishing Jesus from the Levites. Yes, they were humble in their appointment, the Levites, But let me tell you about Christ. He, being the Son of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself. And the Father, who called him a son, which is a position of submission, the Son, who is God, is now begotten or sent forth. So he is under authority. He is humble because he is sent by the Father. Remember, Jesus is God and he submits himself to the will of the Father and is sent by him. This is the significance of saying, you are my son. Yes, you are deity, but you've submitted yourself to me, and today I have sent you forth. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. It also quotes Psalm 110. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the 110th Psalm is quoted. Jesus is appointed priest, but not in the Levitical order. And this is important. This doesn't disqualify him. It makes him over or supersede the office of the Levitical high priesthood. What was wrong with that office? It was made of broken and weak men, but not the office of the line that Jesus comes from, the line of Melchizedek or the order of Melchizedek. And to be honest, for the longest time, every time I came across Melchizedek, I always thought to myself, who is this dude? Who is this guy? Good question, because he doesn't appear often in Scripture. In fact, only twice does he appear in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, when Abraham is coming back from a battle, reminding you, before the time of Moses, before the Levitical priesthood, coming back from a battle, and he meets Melchizedek and recognizes him as such and says, you are a priest of the Most High God. So there's this priesthood that we're not given a beginning to and we're not giving an end to, but here's Melchizedek, Abraham recognizes, and gives him a tithe. So this is Melchizedek, this picture of a priesthood who has no beginning and has no end. It's a picture of who Christ would be, what office he would fulfill. In fact, the only other time in the Old Testament where we read of Melchizedek is in Psalm 110 that is quoted here is David refers to Melchizedek or the order of Melchizedek in equality with the office of the Messiah. The point of Melchizedek as I see it is that he symbolizes in the Old Testament a priesthood different from the human priesthood of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Jesus has to, he has to occupy that office to not only be the sacrificer, but to be the sacrifice himself. All of this points out that Christ was chosen by God. He was not chosen from a family limited to a certain time, but from an eternal order, the order of Melchizedek. Our humble high priest, as humble as the Levites are and were, our humble high priest came to do the Father's will exclusively and perfectly, to bear witness to the truth at every turn, to bring light to the darkness always, to bring true judgment and to bring abundant life. Now, when you compare the human priesthood to that humility of Christ, there is no comparison, is there? Christ shines all the brighter. He also has a solidarity with his people. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Christ shows the ultimate humility, taking on flesh even more humility than the Levitical priest. He shares with us also solidarity, though. You might say, wait a minute. How? How is he to share solidarity with us. He's not ignorant or wayward, beset with weakness like the Levitical priests. How can he relate? Well, remember from last week what we are told about Jesus. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He had opportunity, my brothers and sisters, in every way you have an opportunity to sin. He could have gotten angry many times, He could have lashed out many times. Think of all the possible categories of sin. He had exposure to possibility in all those realms, yet without sin. So he has maintained solidarity with us, and that he's experienced everything we have, understands completely what it's like to be tempted. The difference is he did not give in, and that gives him the name above all names. It gives him the ability to not only be the sacrificer, but to sacrifice himself to end all sacrifices. That's the purpose of the priesthood wrapped up in Christ. Finished in Christ. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Luther said it well, that the mystery of the humanity of Christ is that he sunk himself into our flesh, and that's beyond all understanding, he said. In the days of his flesh, it refers to the time of his incarnation, he offered up prayers and supplications. And I know that the text is speaking in a high point about Gethsemane, when he was there wrestling with the Lord. But I would have to say to you that is this not a description of the whole life of Christ? I mean, he got up early in the morning to go pray. What do you think those prayer sessions were about? They were intense, and I would submit to you that they probably were all precursors to Gethsemane. They're all on the same theme over and over and over again, the weight of the sin that Jesus would have to take on himself at the cross. He was starting to get loaded up with that sin, and he would go to the Father in prayer and wrestle with God over the very will of God. Not that he doubted it, not that he's backing out, but the very fuel that God gave him in a progressive way was through prayer and suffering over the lot that was cast for him, that he would pay for our sins. And that's heavier than any of us can uh, ever understand. Well, it's true that Jesus may not have sinned in the way we have. He hasn't sinned, so he doesn't have that same relation. You don't have the same relation that he had with the Father when he bore sins that were not his on his own back. And so he suffers, he cries over these. His prayer sessions with the Father were not lighthearted. They were heavy and they were wrapped up in the approach to the cross. He never once flinched on his way to the cross. And what fueled him to the cross was the constant prayer with the Father to keep true to the will of God that he was given. That is the purpose of the high priest. And only Jesus does this perfectly in himself. No one else has done it. It's almost an insult to think in terms of someone else as a priest when you think of what the high priest has done. Being appointed by God, being a humble high priest, being a perfected high priest, there's no need for any others. Although he was a son, verse 8 says, he learned obedience from what he suffered, what he suffered as a man. And he learned obedience to what? In particular, to Jesus' answering the call to suffer death in accordance with God's will. Then we have, as this beautiful climax of this hourglass or this concentric symmetry the new office of the high priest. Verse nine, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What is said about Christ cannot be said about any other priest or high priest of the Levitical order. Here we are told that Christ was made perfect. Thus he became the sole source of eternal salvation. Please look closely at those words. Being made perfect. What this is referring to is his humanity. He's perfect as God. He takes on flesh and then God uh, prescribes for him 33 some odd years to live out that perfection. To show forth his perfection. So that at the end of that three year public ministry, God the Father can say, this is a worthy sacrifice. He has been tempted in all ways yet without sin. He has done what Adam could not or did not do. He is accepted his life has been perfected. He is completed in what he has been called to do. Not that he wasn't perfect before, but now his humanity has been made perfect. And he then has been made or declared, you might say, the sole source of salvation. Please see this. It doesn't say a source of salvation. The sole source of eternal salvation. This is key, and we not, ought not hide it under a bushel. It's not a matter of elitism. It's a matter of really, truly loving people and telling them there is only one way. It's the one who paid the price. How can you go before the Lord in your sin? Think of the high priest. What did he have to do? How can anyone say that I could stand before God because of the good things I've done? If anyone could say that, it would have been the high priest and they still had to offer a blood sacrifice. But Christ gives us the way and all men everywhere need to hear that because it's the only way that they can have eternal salvation. Jesus says it of himself, is declared here again, by the writer of Hebrews. And if we understand what is meant as him being high priest, we will see clearly that it is only through him. And how? Being designated by God, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. That's who he is. But how do we become saved? How do we know that we have eternal salvation? Obeying him. Wait a minute, that's works. I mean i got to do something? Work? What it says is obey him. He says, follow me. He says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Believe upon me. Obey that. It's true, obedience in a general sense will manifest whether you really do have a relationship with the Lord. So those words are often used, often used synonymously in scripture. But it always comes from the gift of faith that God gives in his son, and then from his son in that relationship come fruit. So if we're not obeying him, it begs the question as to whether we trust him. But to obey him is to come and follow him. That's how we know we have eternal salvation. J.C. Ryle said this concerning this amazing truth of Christ's incarnation. Who can estimate the value of God's gift? When he gave to the world his only begotten son, it is something unspeakable and incomprehensible. It passes man's understanding. Two things there are which man has no arithmetic to reckon and no line to measure. One of these things is the extent of that man's loss who loses his own soul. The other is the extent of God's gift when he gave Christ to sinners. Sin must indeed be exceeding sinful when the father must needs give his only son to be the sinner's friend. Christ is the high priest. He's the priest to end all priests. You know, there are all sorts of ways in which this practically applies to us. If you think it's just high and lofty theology and just uh, you know, interesting but doesn't affect my life where I'm at, Remember what we spoke of last week and continue on thinking of this week. We learned that Christ has purchased, with his own blood, direct access to God the Father. Tell me, is there something more important to your access than God? Well, we have direct access because of Christ. We need no mediator. In fact, I find it wonderfully interestingly interesting and beautiful that when speaking to a pastor, a rather young pastor, Paul writes to Timothy And Timothy, who could have had the power to be lofted up or or, uh, big headed about his position as pastor of that church, he says, Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not without purpose that this is written to a pastor. That is true. And that's why there's another application that has to be spoken of. We are no longer in need of priests like the Levites, Jesus trumps them, they're obsolete. He is our great high priest. This has always been a particularly sensitive thing to me as I've grown up in the Roman tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, where I was taught clearly and without question that a priest was a mediator between God and man. I was told because I had some spiritual awareness as a youngster, you should probably be a priest. They said it with all seriousness because those were people who were specially identified to be mediators for the rest of the people. And perhaps God was calling you to that if that's what your sensitivity was to spiritual things. In fact, even today, relatives will refer to me as a priest when talking to other people, because their view of the clergy is priestly, that it is a, you are a mediator between God and man. And they'll talk to me. He's a priest in the Presbyterian Church, which is rather funny if you understand the, the exact roots of the Presbyterian Church. But they mean well, and they're referring to what they know. And in their mind, the priesthood and the Roman Catholic mindset is still that it is a mediatorial role. It stems from many things, but simply put, The Lord's Supper is still a continuing sacrifice in their mind. In other words, some eternal sacrifice has been made, and we draw off of that every time the mass is spoken, as it's referred to. And so this is an actual sacrifice of Christ. Well, who can actually do a sacrifice except a priest? And so the priest is given that role only. Not average common man, but only the priest can do that. Furthermore, he serves as a mediator between God, you and God, and so therefore you have to go to him to share your sins not about directly going to God. It's going through the means that the church is appointed, which is the priesthood. And so you go to the priesthood to confess your sins. I did it many times as a youngster, many times. I, I'd walk out and I always remember a whole bunch that I didn't tell. I, I can relate with Martin Luther who would confess eight hours on end, walk away and five minutes later have to come back because there was something else he had to confess. And he went through the priest. That was the way it was taught. That's the way it still is proclaimed. Unless you think I'm just building some straw man, let me recite for you from the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. And I say it's because it's important. Maybe you personally struggle with this or because you have friends or family that are, are involved in this, uh, tr- this particular theological tradition. Listen to what it says in their own words. The sacrifice of the mass, so they're referring to their uh, partaking of communion as they understand it, indicates only one side of the priesthood. The other side is revealed in the power of forgiving sin for the exercise of which the priesthood is just as necessary as it is for the power of consecrating and sacrificing. Like the general power to bind and loose, the power of remitting and retaining sins was solemnly bestowed on the Church of Christ. Accordingly, the Catholic priesthood has the indisputable right to trace its origin, in this respect, also to the divine founder of the Church. Both sides of the priesthood were brought into prominence by the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was an important Uh, during the reformational era, a reaction to some degree to the reformation, that made statements that were bold statements that have never, and I repeat, never never been retracted. And hear what it says. If anyone shall say that in the New Testament there is no visible and external priesthood, nor any power of consecrating and offering the body and blood of the Lord, as well as of remitting and retaining sins, but merely the office and bare ministry of the preaching of the gospel, which incidentally basically describes me, and the Reformed tradition, and pra- frankly, the Protestant tradition. What does it say about us? Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's what it says. Far from being an unjustifiable usurpation of the divine powers, it continues, the priesthood forms so indispensable a foundation for Christianity that its removal would entail the destruction of the whole edifice. A Christianity without the priesthood, so says the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, Cannot be the church of Christ. Now I ask you, without being combative in any way, how does this comport with what Hebrews has declared about Christ? What does this say about Christ's finished work on the cross? Is it really finished? Is he really all we need? What does this say about your direct access to the throne of grace? One of the great contributions of the Reformation was a recapturing of the doctrine that Scripture clearly teaches called the priesthood of all believers. My friend and mentor wrote this. To the Reformers, this was a gross distortion of biblical and early church worship practices. One of their greatest achievements was to restore intelligent, unified participation in the body of Christ in worship. They transformed the people from uncomprehending observers to the worship of the sacrificing priests into an act of royal priesthood. Calvin, echoing the early church fathers, insisted that, quote, each Christian bears the exalted title of sacrificer, end quote and therefore has the right place in the offering of praise and prayer in the liturgy. It is not the priest alone who has access to the heavenly sanctuary, but rather every member of the body of Christ has heavenly access into into God's throne room on the Lord's day. In the new covenant, there are no degrees of nearness as there were in the old covenant, but every worshiper is a saint that is one who has sanctuary access. The table of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the actual body and blood of Christ. It's a reminder of the finished work of Christ accompanied with the Holy Spirit's ministry in a special and even mysterious way. And we come to celebrate it every week to remember the finished work of Christ. I am not a mediator between you and God. My role, rather, is very clearly to help you better understand who the sole mediator is. I am not a sacrificer on your behalf. The Lord's Supper is not a perpetual sacrifice but a perpetual reminder with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of the finished sacrifice of Christ. There are ordained offices in the church. This is not a church that is ruled by the people as such. There are people that are specially suited to be elders and deacons in the church. In fact, Timothy is told, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there are elders in the church who do have that governing authority, and that's the beauty of the the approach that we have in our structure. But something else that you may not know from our liturgy, I don't, we don't, the ministers, process down the aisle to represent how good and special old Tony is. What that is is a, a, a sample of from the people come those who are ordained to be elders. And I go back into the people as soon as it's over. That's what the recessional is. This is very, very important for us to understand so that we better grasp how it is that we live out the priesthood of all believers. The modern-day minister, quite frankly, carries more resemblance with the prophets than he does with the priests. Do you remember what I said about planned obsolescence at the beginning of our time together? I believe that I can show from the scriptures that this is true about the priesthood. And I close with this. In Exodus 19, the church, that is Israel in that day, was told something wonderful. It was a forecast of what they would become. There would be a time for the priesthood, but ultimately, listen to what Exodus 19, 4-6 forecasts. You yourselves... Have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, to the church. You will be a kingdom of priests. He's forecasting this. Has it happened yet? of all people to say it, Peter. You know who Peter is, who he really is. Listen to what Peter says. But you are a chosen race, he says to the church. You are, present tense, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He wasn't talking to a graduating class of seminary students getting ready to go off to their churches. He was speaking to the church, and he says... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing we can gain from this study on Christ as our great, most merciful, faithful, and perfect high priest, it's that there is no other access to God And the access we have is perfect. It cannot be improved. And he calls us to himself daily. And we can because of who he is. He's our perfect high priest. He's your perfect high priest. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have purchased us access to your own throne.